Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, where we are going to be looking at the sixth and final petition. And what we mean by petition is this is our last prayer request that Jesus teaches us as a church to be praying. This is Communion Sunday, or better known as Family Worship Sunday. We have our middle schoolers and high schoolers in the service with us and their families. So I do want to say welcome to you guys. Um, people have asked the question, where we're doing communion, and do you know the coronavirus is going around, we're all going to die? And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Um, so we just want to let you know, all of our ushers and, and all of the, uh, the folks who will be serving communion, hand sanitizer is on all of the tables. They're, they're loading up, and I'll tell you what, that, yeah, all of our hands are kind of burning at this point. So... Um, just want to let you know we're taking precautions. And if you want some hand sanitizer for whatever reason, go get you a little squirt. And there's some over there, and, and it's all good. So, um, but we do want to be a people who are mindful uh, to be washing our hands and making sure you're not touching your face and all that kind of stuff. Be mindful to be praying uh, for those who are sick and be mindful to be praying for those who have lost loved ones because of this. But at the same time, God is in control. There's no need for hysteria. Um, and so we as Christians should lead the way in this. Uh, so let's have faith, let's pray, and let's also have faith while we pray and wash our hands. It's all good. Matthew 6, verse 13. And this is where we find the Lord's petition, the last one, the third and final one, and it's about temptation. Here's what Jesus teaches us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This theme of temptation is serious. Uh, this theme of temptation, I think, is important. Um, and uh, I have to cut the sermon short today for various reasons. I'm going to preach the longer one this evening, so uh, that's just the way it goes. And uh, in order to do that, we're going to focus only on the temptation side of it and how God delivers us through that, and so it'll be uh, a little quicker. If you have the outline and you're wondering why I didn't talk about the other stuff, that is why. There's a phenomenon in our, church, in our culture today uh, with escape rooms. You know, you know what these things are? Like people legit like pay 30 bucks to get locked into a room with no windows or no escape. And uh, that's good money. And anyway, so they do this um, in order for the adventure or whatever. And so I was kind of researching this because I'm looking for different things for our staff to do for team building type exercises. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking, man, this would be so hilarious. So anyways, I was looking at it. And one, on one of the websites, they talk about why escape rooms are so popular. They said it's because of teamwork and because it's a shared problem with a shared experience of overcoming the problem. I thought that was very interesting. And the reason why I think it's very interesting is because when you look at this petition on temptation, Jesus, the reason why he teaches us to pray about this is because it's common to every person. We should pray about temptation, about being delivered from temptation, because it's a common experience among all human beings. And as human beings with this shared experience, Jesus also uses the pronouns us, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, to indicate not only is this a problem for all human beings, but also how awesome would it be is if we as a people came together to overcome this problem. And so the very enticing things about escape rooms is the very thing that Jesus is talking about here, about, you know what, it's a common problem we all experience and there's a common like rallying together to overcome the problem, and that's how you escape. And then lo and behold, we find in First First Corinthians chapter ten, where the Apostle Paul writes about how there is an escape from temptation. And I love this. What it boils down to is quite simply this: there is something fundamentally wrong with our hearts that leads us into temptation, for which we need deliverance. And that can only come from God. 
You'll read about this more in the workbook. But the reality is Jesus is assuming every human being experiences temptation. Every human being wants to overcome that temptation. But the fact is we have to pray about it because we do not possess the willpower in order to overcome it in and of ourselves. We need help from the outside. Therefore, we pray. Now, even those who aren't even Christians understand this. Even those who wouldn't identify as a follower of Jesus, if you're here today, and there's so many people here, I have no idea to even make a, an assessment of who is or isn't a follower of Jesus, but you all know what temptation is, its power and its effect, and your desire to overcome it, because I know there's somebody here who may not be a Christian who doesn't want to eat sugar anymore. And yet, there they are every day, vending machine, bags of Skittles, and all kinds of stuff, and they're like, no. Next thing you know, you find them in the closet, just like, what? And chocolate all over their face. We know the strength of temptation, and we want to overcome it, and that's why we want to come together um, to overcome these things. And Jesus understands that. That's why Jesus gave his church this sixth petition to overcome temptation by being delivered through him. This prayer is a prayer that we want to be delivered from temptation, recognizing we don't have what it takes to, to deliver ourselves. We don't have enough mental fortitude or willpower to do it we need help and that's why jesus teaches us you can come to god and pray now what jesus also teaches us is that temptation is common to all people it is not something that only some people experience and this sounds terrible but what jesus says is temptation is inevitable it's about to happen it is happening and there's this is that's just the way it is he says this in Luke 17, 1 to his disciples, temptations to sin are, are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Like how, man, you mean temptations are just going to be there? Yep, they're always going to be there. But woe to the one through whom they come. So if you're somebody who's high cholesterol, you don't want to eat bacon anymore, it's like, you know, tell your wife or tell your husband, like, I can't eat bacon anymore. Woe to you, you know, tempting me with this bacon sizzling in the frying pan but i love that verse but the one thing we can't do with temptations they are inevitable and escape is possible but the one thing we can't do with temptation is we can't blame god for it and that's what we do whenever we're tempted and you and i know this you see the sizzling bacon or the allure of sugar it's always somebody else's fault it's always like well god why did you give me this job where i have to smell bacon how dare you it's your fault or you blame your spouse, or you blame your kids, or you blame your coworkers, or somebody. It's like, do you have to eat that sugar in front of me? Do you know what I'm going through? And so we blame them about temptation. But the one thing that we learn in James chapter 1 is we ought never to blame God for our temptations. Here's what James writes in verse 13, chapter 1. Let no one, when he is tempted, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when we are tempted, we generally want to blame somebody. Obviously, it's not our fault. It's got to be God's fault or it's got to be somebody else's fault. And what we read in James is, whoa, 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 don't you go around blaming God for your temptation. Which leads to this question, well, where do our temptations come from then? Like, what's their origin? And when we continue to read in James, we actually find the origin. We read in verse 13 already. Let's jump down to verse 14 and 15. But when you are being tempted, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives or uh, grown, brings forth death. So the Bible gives us, and we'll talk about this in sequence. The Bible gives us two sources of our temptation. Number one is in ourselves. So even though most of the time when we face temptation, we are always trying to blame somebody else, blame God, blame somebody else. Really what the Bible is saying is, whoa, 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 when you're in the midst of temptation, let's start with the reality that, you know what, it originates inwardly. It originates with your own desires. That is to say, you want what you want. You will what you will. You desire these things. And when you desire these things and you want these things and you give in to that desire and that will and you actually take hold of it, it produces sin, and that sin ultimately has a consequence, which is death. Now, it isn't just death physically, but it's death spiritually. You can see because of verse 12, where verse 12 talks about receiving the crown of life. And so what we know from this is the end of temptation is death. Separation from God, physically we die. That's, that's how that came about. But how it originates is our own desires. How in the world did we get this way? Well, it all started in Genesis 3, as you remember. Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan, tempted, and they fell because Eve took and ate. She gave some to her husband. They plunged humanity into irrevocable chaos and distortion. And now every human being who lives after them is always struggling with evil desires. And from these evil desires comes sin, and sin, when it is full grown, produces death. And we saw the spiritual separation, the spiritual death, as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they were exiled. And then we saw the physical death in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Genesis. And then here's what God says in chapter 6 as a summary of humanity. This is not a, a rosy picture that God is painting for us. Watch this in verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I have no idea how someone can read that sentence and go, yeah, but we're basically all right. No, no, no. See, the intentions, like what you intend to do in your heart, and the heart is always in the Bible talking about the deep seed of who you are. It's the deepest part of what it means to be you. Uh, the intentions of the deepest part of who you are and, and the thoughts that come from that, from your heart, here's the reality. They're only evil. Only evil, meaning there's not not evil in the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so how often are you constantly thinking and intending evil? Well, continually. That means without ceasing. There's no end to the amount of evil that you desire and want and think about all the day long. Now, this isn't a very rosy picture, and, and so therefore there was a flood that happened, and so the flood came, and naturally if you read the Bible, you're like, oh, well, God was just saying in Genesis 6 that those people were really bad, but after Noah's flood, we're all basically good. Well, that doesn't jive with the Bible, especially when you read the prophet Jeremiah when he writes this in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Once again, not a very rosy picture. Even though Emily Dickinson, as you probably know, wrote in 1862 in one of her poems, the heart wants what the heart wants. And we all go, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> and then in 2014, Selena Gomez, she sang about 
The Heart Wants What The Heart Wants. She won a Walt Disney Music Award for the best breakup song of the year because as she sang, the heart wants what the heart wants. And what we learn from Disney and various other places in our culture is we live in a follow your heart culture. That is, if you have questions about your future, if you just don't know what to do, and if you're, you know, like, I don't know what, what should happen, especially young people, middle school, high school kids, this is the culture that you live in and you swim in, and you probably don't even think about it, but you need to start thinking about it. But when you hear this kind of stuff, just follow your heart and you'll never go astray. Baloney! <laughs> your thoughts and intentions of your heart are evil only, continually, always. You are deceived and your heart is sick. Don't follow your heart. And so, I hate to say it, but even in Christian homes, you hear this as some sort of advice. Unfortunately, I'm going to say it bluntly, just in case anyone may be confused. That is an unbiblical approach to discipling your children, is encouraging them to follow their hearts. Unless, that is, their heart has been replaced the heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh, which only comes from the new birth, which is called regeneration, which can only happen as you repent and believe the gospel. And the Holy Spirit performs that kind of work. And then I would say, yes, follow your heart as a redeemed, repentant, reconciled person. Even Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Never would you find Jesus on the hillsides of Galilee saying, all right, everyone, listen up. All we have to do is follow our hearts, guys. It'll lead you home. And was like, oh, yes. Instead, Jesus says, don't trust your heart. Your heart is full of sin. And if you follow your heart, it will lead you to death. Well, temptation comes from within. It comes from our own evil desires, which are continually evil. With every thought of our heart, deceptive, sick, don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. He will get you out of your heart. <laughs> well, where else did temptation come? The Bible teaches us, Matthew chapter 4, that temptation comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from Satan or the accuser or the devil or the tempter. You read it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, where Jesus was led to the wilderness to be tempted, and then he's identified, the, Satan is identified as the tempter. And so our temptations not only come from within ourselves, they come from outside of ourselves. Satan or the accuser or the devil, he tempts us. But that doesn't give us an excuse to say, oh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> what am I going to do? No, because there's twofold. Sure, the devil may tempt you, but the devil doesn't make you do it. You did it. And so we have to make sure that we understand these two things in tension. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he talks about this temptation and his fear of it. He writes, For when, you, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. The Apostle Paul is telling the church, Look, dude, we've been warning you for a long time. Suffering and affliction are coming. Just as it came, uh, just as it came to pass and just as you know. Verse 5 for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, he says, I sent Timothy to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
The Apostle Paul is fearful that the church is somehow tempted by the tempter to totally abandon their faith. And so he sends Timothy to check in on the church. Now, what was the situation that created this kind of fear within Paul? The situation was the presence of affliction, the presence of suffering, the presence of hardships, the presence of a trial. You see, when we experience sufferings and hardships and afflictions of various kinds, otherwise known as trials, whatever they come, however they come, when we experience trials, that is when we are oftentimes at our weakest. And when we are at our weakest, we become very vulnerable. And so, in the midst of trials, Satan loves to tempt us, for he knows in those moments we are at our weakest. And so, just in case you didn't know this already, when you are hurting, you are more likely to sin than when you're feeling good. That's just the way it is. And so, when you're, as, as there's an acronym that I've heard before, HALT, H-A-L-T. When you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lazy, and when you're tired, temptation is not far behind. That's when we're at our weakest. And Satan knows that. And so, whenever he can, if he can find us in that state, he loves to bring about temptations. But brothers and sisters, do not confuse trials with temptations. They're not the same thing, though they're oftentimes related. The Apostle James writes this in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Apostle James is writing to us, you know what, when you encounter trials, consider it pure joy because God is testing you. And what God is doing is testing our hearts to see if our faith is genuine. So count it pure joy when you face these trials, these tests from God, because God is testing this genuineness of your faith and he wants to see if you will practice steadfastness because as you practice steadfastness, you will be made perfect and complete. You won't lack anything. And isn't it interesting that in the same chapter, the Apostle James, who writes about the trials that these brothers and sisters are experiencing, he then goes on to talk about temptation. Don't you dare blame God for that God is tempting you in the midst of your trial. And don't you dare think that somehow God has done this to you in the sense that he is tempting you because God cannot be tempted. He himself tempts no one. And so that's the context in which James is writing. You know what? In the midst of your trials, you're going to be tempted by Satan. And you're going to be tempted by your own desires. And in the midst of those temptations, you're going to want to blame others or blame God. Do not blame God. But you need to take ownership for what's really going on, which is you want the sin that you want. You want it. Your heart wants it. And you want it. So don't blame anyone for this. You see, the temptations that we often experience and how Satan tempts us in the midst of our hardships is he often lays out before us things that we long for. And so if we know, for instance, that we've experienced this hardship and we know that we are vulnerable, let's say, for instance, we've just lost our job, we've just lost our house, we've just got in a car accident, our car is totaled, we have no idea what we're going to do. 
When you're in the midst of that kind of hardship, you're thinking to yourself, what am I supposed to do now? And one of the first things you say is, God, where were you in this? How dare you do this to me? What's wrong with you? And then we start blaming the other people. My boss is an idiot or whatever. And then pretty soon what ends up happening is we entertain the thoughts of despair. What am I going to do now? How are we going to get the kids to school? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And what ends up happening in the throes of despair we begin to just abandon the truths that we know, which is why we spend all morning singing these songs about how God will not let us go, about how in the midst of trials, in the midst of sufferings, he will not abandon us. Because you and I don't have a very good memory, and when we're hurting, the first thing that goes is truth. And what do we learn about the true things of God in Romans chapter 8? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Should nakedness or sword or tribulation or hardship, persecution, famine? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. So when we experience these temptations in the midst of these hardships and trials, we are being tested. The genuineness of our faith is being exposed. And what also is being exposed is our idolatry. Whether or not you realize it, one of the things that hardships, what makes hardship so hard is that it exposes what our hearts truly love. So it's not so much, man, I lost my job. It's now I don't have an income. And the reason why people lose their job and no longer have an income and then drive to a bridge and jump off of it is because they've been despairing. Their hope and their life and their longing and their value comes from money. And now when money has been threatened or taken away, I now have no reason to live. And I will jump. And so hardships open our hearts and let the idols pour out. The reason why we gossip, slander, hate, evil, sulk, complain, murmur, and blame others is because we think they have taken our idols from us. Why we blame God. How dare you do this to me, God? He's threatening our idols. You know, one thing that's helped me over the years about idolatry is found in Ezekiel 14. And in Ezekiel 14, we read how God speaks to Ezekiel the prophet because Ezekiel the prophet has been asked by the people of Israel to inquire of the Lord for them. So here's the interaction, verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me, Ezekiel says, and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Of course, it does not mean literally that there was open heart surgery and then they plunged, you know, wooden statues into their organ. That is not what he's talking about. Instead, what he's talking about is the seat of your affections and the deepest part of who you are, you have opened these things to these other loves of yours. And the things most common in this time that the people were struggling with when it comes to idols were safety, security, comfort, and wealth. And these people have taken these kinds of things, comfort, safety, security, and prosperity into their hearts. And what has happened is they have set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. The word stumbling block is always a metaphor for temptations. So what's happened 
is they are be, have become idolaters. They love comfort, safety, security, and prosperity more than anything else. And because of that, they are falling in temptation. And so God says, should I indeed uh, let, let myself be consulted by them? Verse 4, therefore, let them speak and say, let them uh, speak, let me, ah, oh, my contacts are so blurry, I'm struggling. Therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Any one of the house of Israel who takes the idols or his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him. And as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. In other words, these people want to hear from me and yet they're bringing a multitude of idolatry in their hearts to me. So they want me to speak. Well, I'll speak all right. And what I'm going to do in my speaking is I'm going to show them that they have become estranged from me. They have distanced themselves from me because of their idolatry. And so what God is doing is he's speaking a, a kind word to us. You may not realize it, but your idols are killing you. So what do we do? Verse 6, therefore, God says to the house of Israel, to all of us, repent and turn away from your idols. I don't know that we necessarily take seriously this kind of teaching, but trials expose our very hearts. The trials expose whether or not the faith that we proclaim is genuine or not. Trials oftentimes reveal the idolatry that is in our hearts. But if you notice, idolatry is almost never a bad thing in the sense that the thing that we worship or love or justify ourselves or find ultimate meaning and significance from, they almost are never bad things. Your family can be an idol. Is family a bad thing? No. Money can be an idol. Is money a bad thing? No. Health can be an idol. Is health a bad thing? No. Idolatry is when we take a good thing like money or health or family and we make it an ultimate thing. And we say to that idol, you complete me. You make my life worth living. If I lose you, I have nothing. And so when the job is lost and when the child dies, to the bridge we go. Despair overwhelms us because we can't imagine a life without our idols. And in the midst of that, we have to be reminded our idolatry is not good. And what Satan is doing is tempting us in the midst of our weakness with the very idols of our own hearts. You notice Satan never tempts us with things we don't enjoy. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Hey, I have this plastic bag full of dog poop. Want to eat it? <laughs> no. But if we're trying to overcome our addiction to sugar, mm, we smell the sweet smell of cheesecake don't we? Satan's no dummy. He knows exactly how to get at us in our weakness. So how do we escape this? How do we overcome despair? How do we fight our temptations? What has God granted to us that we may live? And I love God and his tenderness and affection for us as a father because he never leaves us to our own devices. 
Instead, what God does is he provides us a game plan for how to overcome. The game plan is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 14. If you have a writing device and you have a Bible, remember, this is just ink and paper. This is not holy in any way. This is just a book. Um, So you can write in it. And so what I would do is underline it, highlight it, circle it, star it, box it, triangular, notify it, do what you need to do. But this section of 1 Corinthians 10 needs to stand out to you. We see it in verse 6 through 14. Here's the game plan. I'm going to give it to you in four parts. Each part starts with the letter R in order for you to memorize it. It's not in your notes. You might want to write it down. If you can't write it down, put it in your phone. If you don't have a phone, the sermon's online. Go back. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to us, verse 6. Now, these things, and he's referring to the things that happened in the Old Testament, these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. There's that whole desire from within. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it, were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure. And therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul put temptation, a conversation about temptation, juxtapose it, put it right next to a conversation about idolatry? And isn't it interesting that as he's talking about temptation and idolatry, he's saying that one of the ways that you can overcome it is because of the written word of God? So might we then conclude that maybe the written word of God has something to say for us that we may escape temptation and overcome it? And my answer is yes. So how? Well, I think this text gives us four things quickly, four R's. Firstly, we need to recognize In ourselves, the desire for evil. We have to recognize this. And he says in verse 6 and 7, if you look at it, these people, the old saints of the Old Testament, they're examples to us. We shouldn't be like them. Don't desire evil like them. And we need to realize and recognize within ourselves, we have evil desires. Do not pretend as if you don't. You absolutely do, and you must recognize it. Step two would be this. Remind yourself of the dangers of temptation, evil desires, and idolatry. If you look in verses 8 through 10, he talks about how the people were committing sexual immorality and 23,000 people died. They were grumbling and they got destroyed by serpents and all kinds of stuff. Do not confuse the reality that temptations have consequences if we engage in sin by falling for our temptations. There are ramifications for our sin. Don't be fooled. 
And so when we think about the reality of this, I know so many young people and older people, like it doesn't really matter, who are just addicted to their phone. And then I hear things like, man, I just can't put it down, or I play these games, or I'm on social media all the time. And I hear of men who are struggling with pornography and all kinds of stuff. And I ask the question, when does it come? And it says, when I'm scrolling through Instagram, I say, get rid of Instagram. (gasps) What? I could never. When are we going to take seriously the reality that temptation is not something to joke around about? Jesus says, gouge your eyes out, cut your hands off. Obviously, he's being hyperbolic, but what he's saying is, this is serious stuff. Better for you to be maimed and get into heaven than to continue to indulge in your temptation and go to hell. And when you have serious conversations like this, these people got destroyed. And we're just playing games, giving 12-year-olds phones and just saying, yeah, have at it. Bullying, pornography. All this stuff, and we just, eh, get rid of the phone if it's going to cause you to sin. I could never. That's your idol then. And so, brothers and sisters, please, I'm, I, ha- I have a cell phone. I have an iPhone right here. It's mine. So don't think I'm anti-technology guy. But I tell you what, if this thing leads me to sin, it's out the window. I can't afford to keep this in my home. I can't afford to have this because there are consequences, dear brothers and sisters. Let's stop pretending as if there isn't any. Remind yourselves that this is serious business we're talking about here. And then third R, refocus. Refocus your attention on God and his faithfulness. Oftentimes we, we think that, you know what, the best thing to do in the midst of temptation is just go inward and dive inwardly about yourself and how you're feeling and what's happening. Get your mind off of yourself. That's the problem, not the solution. The problem is not we don't think of ourselves enough. The problem is we think about ourselves too much. And so, therefore, we need to get our eyes off of self and eyes onto God. And what does it say in verse 13? No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. Don't think that you're the only person on planet Earth who's ever had this temptation. How boastful and arrogant are you to say that? I'm the only one. There's, I'm, the, I'm the only one in seven billion people on Earth who has something like this. Aren't I great? No! <laughs> There's so many people who are tempted like that. But look at the next three words. God is faithful. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on God. God is the faithful one. Refocus. And then the last one is redefine. Brothers and sisters, we have to redefine our temptation. Sometimes we wink at it and we blow it off like it's no big deal. We need to redefine our temptation as idolatry. That is what it is. If we didn't love this stuff, we wouldn't be tempted by it. We sin because we love it. Nobody does stuff they hate, generally. I hate Brussels sprouts. Guess what I don't eat? Brussels sprouts. Why do I sin? Woe is me, God. Murmur, murmur, murmur. God, why have you made me this way? Verse 14, flee from idolatry. Flee. 
Idols are usually things we look to to give us ultimate satisfaction. And so we need to put those things to death. Real quickly, oh, real quickly. How does this work? How is it that we can, because God said he's going to, with the temptation, not he will abandon all temptation. No, he says with the temptation, that is inevitable. With it, he will provide a way of escape. And so my question is, how do we identify the escape? How do we, how do we know the escape when it comes? And what is the escape? And what does it look like? And what does it mean for us? All these kind of questions. Give me something practical. You know what I'm saying? Well, here it is. And this is going to be a shocker to you. The practical reality is the gospel. <laughs> Duh. We have to remember all that Jesus has done. Why? Because the solution isn't ourselves. We do not have the willpower, the fortitude to do it. Jesus must do it for us. And the truth of the matter is he's already done it. Remember Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Reminding ourselves day by day, I am no longer a citizen of this world. I'm no longer a citizen of this sinful, fallen, decrepit age. I am a beloved child of the king day by day. And then when you recall, you know what? He said in 1 Corinthians 10 that these Old Testament saints were examples, like the Bible is written for our instruction, that we be informed by it. If the Old Testament saints help us combat temptation, don't you think reading about the Son of God might also help? <laughs> Who knew? And then we read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For because... He, being Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted. Because Jesus has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We often think of Jesus as some hippie that just hung out with his homies and they had campfires and s'mores all day. And they just frolicked through the field and picked flowers, put them in their long flowing hair and all this kind of stuff. Everything was kumbaya, love each other, hunky-dory, follow your heart. But that is not what Jesus' experience was. He suffered. And why did he suffer? Because he was tempted. And what does his suffering temptation do for us? It helps us. How? Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Every human being who's ever lived has been tempted and has utterly failed, except one. And because Jesus, when fully tempted, just as like we are, and the weaknesses, just like we are, he was tempted, he did not sin. That means he's able to help us by teaching us how not to sin in the midst of temptation. And who better to teach us than the one person who's actually done it? And so sometimes we feel, sometimes we feel like, you know, no one understands my temptation. You, you can't understand it unless you've been there before. Dude, Jesus has been there before. And when people say temptation is so strong, I, I, can't, I can't overcome it. And, and, you know, like, you just don't understand, you know, because temptation for me is really heavy, really hard, you know, all that kind of stuff. I go, you understand this, that temptation is heaviest and hardest 
for the person who resists it for the longest. Whoever resists temptation for the longest is the only person who understands the full weight and the hardness of temptation. And if we've ever experienced temptation and we give in, we don't even understand how hard it is to not give in. Jesus alone understands the weightiness and the hardness of resisting temptation. He alone is the one human being who has ever lived who, res who resisted it to the very end, never giving in. So, brothers and sisters, you have a sympathetic high priest who understands our weakness and yet is so weak that he is incredibly strong to resist temptation to the very end. And therefore, verse 16, let us with confidence, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we draw near to the throne of grace? How do we confidently come to God's throne of grace and to find mercy and grace we need in our time of temptation? How do we do that? The answer is prayer. Shocker. And so as we pray and we come boldly and confidently into the presence of God at his throne room and we say, God, I'm in the midst of temptation and you know the hardness of this moment. Grant me grace. Grant me mercy. Grant me strength. God, grant me all that I need to endure this moment and emerge out of it as one who has escaped. God, help me. Does that do anything? Oh, yeah, it does. It does something because of the faith that we have. You see, J Jesus delivers us by his life because he never gave into temptation once, but he also delivers us by his death. It is through his death in Hebrews 2.14 that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see, when Jesus died, Satan, the devil, the accuser, the tempter, he was disarmed. So when the te tempter comes to us, and said, don't you want this? Ooh. And you're like, yeah, I do. But then you pray, grace flows, mercy flows. You look at Satan in the face and say, you've been disarmed. Get out of my face, Satan. Because in the name of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done, we can resist the devil and the promises he will flee. Not only that. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we have victory. Remember what 1 Corinthians 15 says? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But look at this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we hear these kinds of truths, and then we think, ah, oh, yes. So what happens is I, by my faith, I will become the victorious one. And I would say, yes, that's kind of true, but don't, don't twist this. Don't get sideways on this. Because sometimes people begin to believe that they can resist Satan exclusively by their own faith. And I hear this a lot in some churches and some people. Your faith will prevail. Your faith will prevail. Your faith will cause you to be an overcomer. And there's even music about this. But remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33. Take heart. I have overcome the world. What you talk about you going to overcome the world? I already did. I did it. And so what do we do about it? Well, 1 John 5, 4. 
It says everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. It's our faith. Oh, so it's our faith that overcomes. Well, hold on, hold on. Your faith doesn't overcome the world, but it's the object of your faith that overcomes the world. So what I mean is this. You don't overcome temptation if you have faith. You overcome temptation by what your faith is in. And if your faith is just, I'm going to believe and I'm going to try harder and I can do it, I can overcome sugar and bacon and the various other sins of my life of gossip and say, I can do it, I have what it takes, I just got to believe and I got to get the right meme on my phone and I got to make sure that I'm inspired enough. You're putting your hope in self and therefore your faith is in yourself. Hate to break it to you, but you're not all that great. And therefore you will fail. Not because you lack faith, but because your faith is misplaced. So instead, we have to put our faith in the only person who has ever overcome temptation, who overcomes sin, who overcomes death, who has risen from the grave. And when we put our faith in him, then even if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, we can say to a mountain, get out of here, mountain. Because it's not the immensity of your faith, it's the faith The object, who do you believe in? And the greater the object, the greater the overcoming. You can get no greater than Jesus. So if you want to overcome temptation, Jesus is your only hope. And that's why 1 John 4, 4 says this. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, being temptation, sin, and evil. Why? Because you're awesome. No. Because you've made your faith great. No. Because you went to a Tony Robbins conference. No. You overcome because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is greater. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the one who has overcome. Jesus is the one who fought temptation and emerged victorious. Jesus has laid to death, death itself. Jesus has risen. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is coming back again. Jesus is our escape. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our everything. Now, what do you say about this? 1 Corinthians 15, we say thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Do you know what communion, the word communion means in, in, uh, in Greek and in, in Latin? It comes from the word eucharisto. Eucharisto, eucharist, which means grace or it means gratitude or it means thank you. And so when we come to communion, what we're doing is we're putting the bread in our hand and the cup in our hand and these symbolize the body of Jesus that resisted sin and was in weakness just like me. And every step of the way, he did this for me. And by his blood, we are forgiven of sins. And so, Eucharisto, thank you. God, thank you. You did this knowing I couldn't do it myself. And so temptations, brothers and sisters, they will come come from within you, they'll come from outside of you, 
But God is faithful. He's provided you a way of escape. And the way of escape is by returning to the gospel and rehearse the fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose again and has conquered every temptation, every fear, death itself, and he offers you life. And if you will approach his throne of grace with confidence, he will supply you with the help you need so that in the midst of your temptation, you can emerge having not given in. Your faith will compel you to pray whether your faith is little or whether your faith is great. It does not matter because Jesus is the one who overcomes. And so go to Jesus, run to Jesus, for it is in Christ, by his spirit, through our faith, that we are victorious. So Father, thank you. God, thank you for how you've loved us. You have done Everything necessary to rescue us from this plight. God, you have conquered Satan. You have conquered death. You have conquered temptation. You have done everything. And so as we come to this table to take in our hands the bread and the cup to be reminded that Jesus has done it all, I pray that you would remind us of these truths, sow them deep into our hearts. And more than that, Lord, I pray that you would receive the thanksgiving that you are rightly deserving of. And so what more can we say? Eucharisto, thank you for such a lavish and glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.